1: to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are in our mid Roland Garros podcast. We've got a very special guest, one that is no stranger to training Grand Slam champions, having an integral role in producing them and guiding them at a very young age somebody I've had a chance to spend a lot of time with on the court and greatly respect for what he does. But before we get there, let's take a look at what we got on both sides of the draw with the final eight. We expected to see Novak and Rafa face off and we're going to get that chance. We, we expected to see Zverev and, and Al Karaz face off and I picked Zverev and he delivered. Casper Rude, Holger Rune. room. We talked about how well he played in the clay court season getting his clay court title. We're picking Casper Rude to win that. And Rublev and Chilich. Chilich with a great win over Medvedev. Uh, I picked Medvedev to make it all the way to the final in that end of the bracket, but he didn't make it. Congratulations to Marin Chilich. It's great to see him playing the kind of tennis we know he can play back when he won the US Open. On the women's side, no surprise, we're seeing Iga Sviantek continue her run. Jesse Pagula continue. I'm picking Iga. Over Jesse. And we got Kuta Matova and Kasakina. Kasakina returning to the semifinal, like coming to the quarterfinal, like she did in 2018 when Sloan took her out. And then Trevisan, a surprise of the tournament, took out little Lele, Layla Fernandez. And Coco Golf, a coming of age, reaching a new milestone, reaching the semifinal of her first Grand Slam. So we'll see what happens. But it's been an exciting French Open with a bunch of surprises with Badosa going out early, Muguruza going out early, Halep going out. And now will we see a first time Grand Slam champion in Coco or Casa Quina, Or will we see Iga continue to take on everyone else and all challengers that she has for the last 30 matches? Take a listen and enjoy getting to know Nick Saviano, his view on tennis, and just insight into one of the best minds that we have in the U.S. today. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with truly one of the best minds in the game. A lot of experience, work with countless professionals known as the best technician in the game or one of them. Uh, I had the personal pleasure of being on court with him for a few weeks, and I must say that he is worthy and deserving of that description. He's in an interesting part now where he doesn't travel. He just set up shop, and things kind of come to him and he's earned that. And so we got the honor today of talking with uh, the legendary Nick Saviano. Nick, thanks for joining well, thank you.
2: I don't know if I'm legendary, but I work hard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to, to, us, to us newbies, you're legendary. Yeah. You know, when you come into the, the coaching ring, you know, you hear names like Macy, Saviano, um, yeah. Lansdorp. you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, if, yeah. if you mention five names, yeah, you would be one of those five.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
1: So you've obviously seen the game for a long time been around the game I want to start with what I think is the most interesting news now which is the Wimbledon mm-hmm. you know, say you know the ATP WTA deciding may or may not decide to award points for Wimbledon and then players may or may not decide to play even though Wimbledon with or without points still to me is the most prestigious slam Yes. And if you have an opportunity to play it and you're healthy, it's a mistake to miss it. Agreed. What do you think about this whole sort of saga we're witnessing, which is very historic, by the way?
2: Yes. I I think the whole thing is unfortunate. I don't like to pull the politics into the tennis. But when you're talking about individual players that are out making a living, doing their thing, and they're not officially... Representing their team. They're not like on a team uh, representing a country. I just personally don't believe it's fair that they should be penalized for something like that. Many of them, of course, they honor their own country in a a multitude of ways, but the, the point is that a lot of them are not even living there. And for them to be penalized for it, just categorically, my personal view is that is a mistake, starting from. beginning especially when uh none of them are are out there promoting the war or promoting politics or being really politically oriented given that i really think that's unfortunate and i think possibly the people that made that decision maybe made it a little too quickly and, and more of an emotional response so i hope they can work through it now once you start with a premise that i feel is flawed then everything decision you make afterwards is not going to be on solid ground. So regarding points, it it hurts some people that it doesn't hurt other people and it helps and it hurts. So it's a convoluted mess. And to say what is best to do with it, I don't know at this point. I hope they can reconcile and get all the players playing, especially when they're not officially representing a country or a government and there just happened to be residents or citizens of that country gosh let them play and uh and then keep the sports clean of that and it is you know a huge tournament it's the most prestigious it's the almost the pinnacle of our of our whole tennis ecosystem so to speak and and therefore uh, I would really hope that they can reconcile it, come with some kind of sensitive, politically sensitive statement that allows them to play and then to just move on. The war is a tragic, unfortunate thing that really is out of the situation that should be involved in the All England Club.
1: Now, you look at how it potentially affects history, right? And you look at right now, you see EGA. Sviantek going on this kind of run. Yeah. Right. And potentially, I mean, has the, has the draw and the opportunity to continue that run through the French and potentially through Wimbledon, which I think grass is perfect for her. And yeah. your years on tour, have you ever seen another player go on this type of run?
2: Yes, I
1: have. And uh,
2: because I've been around a long time, you had, You had uh, some of the people like, um, uh, I think it was um, not not Nadal, but uh, Borg was on a run for a while. Uh, Djokovic had a run of how many matches Mm -hmm. Um, he won in a row there, Um, you know, and also winning all those Grand Slam matches. We've seen it before. Guillermo Vilas, I think, at one point, won 40 something matches in a row. so Chris Everett won a lot of matches in a row. And if you go back and forth, there are times when you've seen a greatness like that. Steffi Graf, I think, won a lot of matches in a row. Monica Sellis. So your point is well taken. We're talking about something historic where it, it goes towards the upper echelon of history of the game you have an athlete that's in the flow, that's young, it's exciting, let's see what they can do to have them denied of that would be absolutely um, tragic. And also when you look at various things where it's unfortunate when somebody like uh, Novak Djokovic couldn't play in the, in the Australian, I mean, come on, Uh, you know, that was really unfortunate. There's a guy that would have we don't know if he would have won but he would have been the favorite and you know it would have maybe had the jump start on being really labeled the greatest of all time and how unfortunate was that so whenever athletes are denied uh it's it's sad and i would i would hate to see it for her because she's so exciting uh she's a great player on the rise and who knows how how great she's going to be and let's not stop it because of this
1: you know um, I was thinking the other day this sort of exposes something within our game that really only at the high level you sort of see the tug of war and the conflict which is the lack of a governing body yeah of our sport you know the ITF WTA ATP you know what I mean so uh, USTA and I think that you know, it's really rare where you see ATP WTA take a stance against the Grand Slams, yeah. right? But it does expose sort of a lack of unity. Um, and you've worked, you know, for USTA, one of the governing bodies. What, what do you think about our structure, how we can do it? Because personally, I find one of the hardest things even now to growing a sport in America, which I know you this we yes. are not where we should be in terms of number one, two or three sports in America. Right To even add more events in the U.S., it's impossible. No place on the calendar. WTA, I mean, USTA, Pro Circuit events are too small, won't make money. WTA, they're all tied up in the bureaucracy. So what do you think this also says about the lack of a governing body for our sport?
2: Well, it's a good point. You know, years ago when Stan Smith was the defending champion at Wimbledon, uh, the USTA took us, the ATP took a stand and the top, hundred players other than the Eastern Bloc players did not play in, in Wimbledon and Stan as the defending champion didn't play. So there's a lot of power when there's organization. And I think that, you know, it's an international sport. Uh, One would think that the ITF would might be in control, but I, I, it's, it's kind of out of my uh, league of really knowing all the ins and outs about it how they can put together a governing body to oversee this kind of thing. There's so many different um, you know, countries that have their own organizations. Then you have the ITF, then you have the ATP, then you have the WTA and, and so on. It's, it's one of the downsides, however, for our, our sport. But if you look at the NBA, I don't think they control the world in terms of basketball. And in baseball, I don't think they control the world here in in baseball. So I'm not sure how soccer runs, but all all I can say is that it's frustrating because you can't get it done. The USTA has its limitations. It is a very political organization and it does its best, but it certainly has its limitations. And, you know, I leave leave it at that. I'm a big um, free enterprise person. And I think that, you know, even some of the great things you have done to put a foundation together to tell people in your area. And I hear you have an amazing facility up there. I mean, guys like you that have the entrepreneurship, that, that have the smarts to go out and the desire to get things done, man, and then seeking out people that will help right now seems to be the most effective way to really help people. And um, I don't think the USTA has the, the, believe it or not, the clout or the resources to do as much as what everyone thinks they can. That once you start taking the fact that you have said, this is a big country and uh, you have the USTA has got the U.S. Open. They make a lot of money, but it's tough to spread it all out and do it in an adequate way. So I would hope that they could do more hybrids where they're working with the private sector together to make things happen. But you know, Kamal, in in that area, I'm not as I'm not as knowledgeable. I stay more focused on developing players and trying to helping them individually in and i let the uh, the people that are at the top of that pyramid take care of it <clears throat>
1: So, we talk about some of those players, right so when i when I first really got to know you, I think it was twenty fourteen okay, and we look at what I's doing, right, so to kind of connect this to what she's doing and in order to get top five in the world, you can't only be good, you can't only have a good slam, win a slam in a year, you know, maybe you get close to five, maybe not top five, yes. but you also have to have momentum,
2: yeah.
1: Right. And you look at like when Barty kind of built momentum, she won the French, she started building momentum. She kept going. Ega uh, is clearly keeping, you know, going And that year. I mean, I was saw I know you led Jeannie Bouchard during that year mm-hmm. to three Grand Slam semifinals.
2: Uh, two sem- Slam uh, semifinals in the third final. And then she had to retire in the round of 16s at the U.S. Open.
1: Yeah. So tell me what that ride was like, right? Because I, you know, when you see the momentum and you try to keep it going and like in our game, right? And I've been on one of those rides as well. In our game, oh, once the momentum keeps going, then things start to pull yeah. right, away from the tennis and like, no, no, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Right. Um, Tell me what you what you think about what you recall from that 2014 thing, because that was the story. And fun well, watch, by the way.
2: Well, thank you. It's look, a couple key points, and you'll you understand this as well as anyone. The momentum is allowed or facilitated by a great mindset. And if the athlete doesn't have the right mindset, they're not going to allow themselves that historic run. And that mindset is when they're focused on being everything they can be, and they're not really distracted by other things. They're zeroed in on letting go of trying to guarantee the outcome and focused on being everything they can be. And that allows them to flow. That allows them to zero in. And you know this, you see that. And when when an athlete is flowing, when an athlete is in the moment, when an athlete is allowing themselves to be everything they can be, and they're willing to let go of guaranteeing the outcome, yet guaranteeing they're going to give themselves the best chance, that's, that's when it's happening. And so you know it as well as I do, when you get that athlete going and it requires a lot of work and a lot of faith and trust in in the team, and you keep that going, that's when they're flowing. And when they're flowing, now you get outside forces. When I was working with Jeannie um, that year, you know, and by the way, you did a phenomenal job with Sloan and in winning that. I sat back and, and I'm, I'm applauding you and what was done because a lot of people don't understand what it takes to win a Grand Slam, the first one in particular. And I've been blessed to be involved with people that have won Grand Slams previously, but I wasn't the one on the court. And you know, um, that's a great effort. And so when I was with Jeannie, that was the first year I chose to travel because of family, I didn't like travel. I don't like traveling, I never have, I turned down (laughs) Capriotti and Courier. I was told that Sampras had asked uh, through an agent if I would work, I didn't even know that. I was asked years ago, whether I'd have an interest in various top players. I didn't want to, but once Jeannie came along, I working with her and, and started Sloan at 11 and a half, Jeannie at 12, uh, Laura Robson, um, Monica Puig, and, and this little group, You know, there are 10, at 12, years old and so you see them develop you get to know them as people and when they look said "Kate, hey, will you come and travel with me for some she said okay fine I'll go to 10 tournaments that was it when we got to Australia uh, she was a basket she was a basket case she was not in a good frame of mind I flew down there she was stressed and and so together myself with the mom we were able to work for a week got her calmed down she got a very easy first round draw somebody who was 310 in the world had gotten a wild card she barely got through the first set and then it started rolling we started getting the right frame of mind and she got all the way to the semis and she was 35 in the world and you know you know a charming gal and, and um, really you know spoke well on camera. so she was a pretty big attraction. So there we were all on board. The focus was great. I didn't travel with her till the warm-up event for the French. She didn't do, I, I, I did it Indian Wells. She got to the quarters. Um, and same with at um, I think it was Miami. She did okay. I didn't go with her till I went to the warm up event for the French. She won that and then got all the way to the semis of the French. And, as you well know, it gets pretty darn exciting. You know, round of 16s is great, but right. quarters is a different league. And now it gets serious. And you say, wow, this is pretty serious. Boom, from quarters to semis, it's going up exponentially. I mean, you're saying this is huge. And now you're in the, the, the semis and your goal is to just, Make sure you dot the I's, cross the T's as a coach. Make sure you're going to give your player every opportunity to play as well. So as a conscientious coach, like I know you are, you are you are staying up at night. You're making sure the car arrives on top. You're making (laughs) sure the the rackets are strong. Practice court is good. Practice court. You're making sure breakfast is perfect. No no exotic restaurants. I mean, you name it. You're walking around, checking around. There's nobody that shouldn't be around your player. So as a coach, you're putting every detail in there to make sure your athlete can get on that court and be everything they can be. And as a coach, as one to another, uh, it's hard for anybody to experience that. And the excitement of seeing them performing well, and the satisfaction of knowing that you facilitated that, is really rewarding. Now, uh, we got to Wimbledon. She got to the semis, lost to Sharapova in three close sets. Then she got all the way to the Wimbledon finals. Was outplayed by a better player on that day. Um, I can say this now, she was also really, really showed a lot of courage, fought through tremendous amount of tendonitis in both knees throughout the tournament and really showed a lot of courage to compete. But it was a great ride and it's really exciting. And uh, I'm forever grateful for me to have had the opportunity and the privilege to work with her, you know, the times also when even in a smaller sense, you know, when I was with Sloan, the first tournament she won or Jeannie, the first tournament. These are milestones and you know that um, and you know other players that I really feel privileged to be part of I feel I was blessed mm-hmm. to be part of it and that's the way I feel now when I work with players even young players, you see all the time and effort and you're a father that these parents, they put into their children. And you say, you know what? I'm blessed to have the opportunity to possibly affect a young person in a positive way. And for me, I've been doing this a long time and I pray I can get another 10 years and and do it and really be productive. So I feel very blessed.
1: Yeah, you know, I agree with you. I think that, you know, during during the run, you are so focused and I always say, (laughs) You know, it's not about what you say, it's what you don't say. When you're riding in the car on the way to the stadium, yeah, everybody, yeah. just be quiet, right? Just don't. Yeah. It's not about what you say, it's what you don't say. And yeah. then sometimes it's not about what happens, it's what doesn't happen. Absolutely. You didn't get food poisoned. You didn't get, yeah. you know, we didn't try five different restaurants and one of them made you sick. Yeah. You know, yeah. our practice court didn't mess, get messed up. We didn't yeah. get the practice partner messed up. Yeah. You know, you're up at night trying to say, okay, there's ten things on your on your notepad, right?
2: Yeah. That
1: are keys to this match. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out she can't handle all ten. Nope. So which three are the most important? The other ones she gonna have to play her way through. Absolutely. But which three are the keys? And then as a yes. coach, you're like, all right, don't mess it up, right? You yes. know, you got you gotta. You you're know, right.
2: so you're so right. You're so right because. You got to know your athlete, and you know, like I said, you did a phenomenal job with Sloan. And Sloan doesn't like to handle too many things out on the court. You know, if if I was working with Jeannie and she had five balls and I didn't say something, she's gonna she's gonna say, well, which is totally different. So as a, as a coach, and you know this, each athlete's different, and you have to adjust and adapt because it's not about us,
1: it's about helping them be the best they can be. 100%. And it's interesting because some players, the job is don't mess it up. Yeah. Right? Yep. You look at someone like Serena, who's like so motivated, so focused, gonna give you 100%, yep. not gonna lay down, Right. Yep. gonna try different things. The job is like, just don't mess it up. Exactly. And then there are some where it requires work. And it requires coaching and strategic and monitoring Absolutely. of, of yeah. like really kind of hands-on. So yeah. a lot of the players you named, I think, fall in that second category. Where Absolutely.
2: You know what, Kamal? You know what you're saying is, is true, is that there's, there's a science of coaching. You know, there's a strategy and tactics and there's the art of coaching and feeling it feeling it as it goes along, you know, at a tournament. Sometimes you got to crack some jokes. Sometimes you got to be quiet. Sometimes you got to be there. Sometimes you got to disappear. And it's a real feel for the individual. And so that is something that is learned. Some people have, you know, a sensitivity towards people and can pick up that. Sometimes it's the synergy and the relationship that you have. But it's definitely needed. And throughout a Grand Slam to get through, it's quite a journey. And so there's a lot of ups and downs. So anyway, I agree with you 100%. So
1: Jim Courier, Yeah. You were, you were present when Jim Courier got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. He talks about your impact on him. Yeah. Um, Jim is, you know, colleague at Tennis Channel. Don't know him as well. Uh, you can tell he's been around great coaches Mm, because of the information that he has and how he's able to articulate. And I always feel a player, how a player is able to articulate what they're feeling, what's happening is a reflection of the words that they were fed. Right. And so tell us about Jim, because that was an era pre me, you know, Sampras, Jim, Agassi, that a lot of people see even today, the TFOs, they don't know that era, right? They weren't on the court. Right. Yeah. Uh, they weren't when they were phasing. So tell us about Jim.
2: Let me tell you real quickly. I came off the tour in February of 84. And the reason my daughter was born. And so I'd asked the USTA, can I come do, you know, if they had anything going on? This was pre-player development. So they said yes. So I'm I'm 28 years old and I could I was still top hundred in the world, singles and doubles. So I go to this camp. And, you know, I told my wife, I said, it's good for me to uh, retire because I was playing with this 15 year old in Germany. And I'm saying, oh, my goodness, this guy's amazing. And we beat him in double seven, six in the third. So I come. So I tell my wife, see, yeah, it's time for me to retire. You know, i got to get out. So I go do this camp. I work with this one kid, this little kid. He's fast as heck. And I'm having to bust my butt to play with this kid. He's 14 years old and saying, what is going on here? So then I go to the next kid and I'm saying, oh, my goodness, this kind of pudgy little guy ripping forehands. And then there was another kid and I'm saying, this is ridiculous. So I call my wife, Says, good thing I retired. So you know who the, the kids were? I was I was playing against Becker, Boris Becker in Germany when he's 15. I come home. The first kid I play as a as a coach, the first, is Michael Chang at 14. The next kid is Jim Currier. This is in one morning. The next kid is Pete Sampras. And then then I'm exhausted at the end. And they say, Have you hit with Andre yet? And in the afternoon, it was Andre. So I met Jim and he's 15 years old. And then I started to get to know him, I've, I traveled with him to some of the junior events. He was obviously a voluntary student who developed and gave him that opportunity, but I had spent quite a bit of time with him, about 10, 12 weeks when he was um, uh, 17. I was with him when he won the Italian juniors, when they won the Italian, the French junior doubles, You know, when he's at Wimbledon, the US Open. And what a lot of people don't know is when Jim was 19 years old. He asked me to watch him at Wimbledon. He was really, uh, really struggling. And he was ranked high, but he said, what's, you know, I'm really struggling. I watched him, I said, you know, you're really very tense out there and very anxious. Try to relax and all this stuff. And we knew each other for a few years and shortly thereafter he asked me to work with him full time. And he was 19. and I said, "No, I'm going to stay with the USTA." Um, and he went on to work with, you know, truly a great coach in Jose Garrison and Brad Stein. So throughout his career, I stayed close with them, and periodically I would work with him, stayed in touch. And he was very, very gracious. Um, you know, throughout we were always very close, and to this day, we're he's am um, very close with Jim. And he's very gracious to, you know, to have myself and my wife be up there at his induction in Hall of Fame. Super bright guy, never would accept anything you said as a coach unless you could explain it and articulate it. (laughs) So he's very smart. And if I said you needed to work on this, it would be why, you know, what's the purpose, et cetera, et cetera. When you could explain it to him, nobody would work harder. No one would be.
0: That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: So, you mentioned that you work for the USTA. Yeah. You came out and, you know, like a lot of guys do, but it takes a lot of courage, right? Because USTA comes with the benefits, guaranteed salary. Yeah. No offense, but no real pressure to produce, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? If, you know, the you're, kid you're loses. Very true. Yeah. If kid loses. It's hey, systemic, it's not you, right? Versus pro tennis it's like, no, Nick and Kamal, your player lost, right? Yes. What are you yeah. gonna do about it? And why, yes. how did you let this happen? Yeah. So how did you do that? Because it's a scary thing. I remember when I left my corporate job to jump into tennis. Great, great,
2: great, great question. Great question. In all the years, no one said that, but only a guy that really understands it himself is gonna ask that. I coached four and a half years um, independently and did very well before I took the USTA job. Then I was with the USTA 15 years. And when I left that a lot of opportunities where people are asking me, but they were not a good fit. And I turned to my wife and I'll tell you, it was scary. And I said, you know what? I got to do my own thing. And so I started with nada. You know, people, nothing. I had no club, nothing. I had some courts where I live. That was it. And I slowly built. And there were a lot of people looking to say, hey, this guy's developed a pretty big name, you know, with the USTA. And I I had success before I got there. Can he make it on his own? I'm starting my own academy. (laughs) And, And I had nothing. I had no club. And you know what? I worked my butt off. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I was working with, you know, Justin Gimelstaub, Jan Michael Gamble, um, Vince Fadia, a lot on the men's side. And then there was a young gal named Sloane Stevens started coming out shortly after at 11. And then uh, Mallory Burdett, who got to top top 60 before she got hurt. Monica Puig, who eventually won the gold medal. Jeannie Bouchard. There was also uh, Lauren Davis that would come out periodically and so I was working, but it's, I had to bust my butt and, you know, it is scary and there were tough times. And this is why I empathize and you do as well with coaches out there. It's not an easy road. And just because I had quote by a lot of people standard, a good name, had some success And as I said, I've been blessed to work with a lot of talented players. It's not easy out there. And so I get up every morning, even now, and I've done well. Uh, I've been blessed to have done well from, uh, you know, every aspect of the game where I've been fortunate. But I get up and I'm still working 12, sometimes 14 hours a day. I love it. But you got to have courage. And you know what? with courage comes vulnerability and if you're going to be courageous you got to be willing to be vulnerable and when you go out on your own as a coach you you are being courageous but you're also vulnerable and then you got to bust it it's sink or swim and that's what I've done and I know that's what you've done and like I said I I, I just got to say this you've You've accomplished so much with what you've done and it's not easy. That's not easy. And I have a lot of respect for that. You've reached the pinnacle of the game, coaching somebody at Grand Slam. You've done a lot of things in community tennis. You've adjusted and adapted. And I know as a coach, and I've been around a long time, that's not easy. So I tip my hat briefly to you as well.
1: Well, same to you, because when I look at, Like running the academy. One of the things when I think about you, you think about, you know, Macy, Bulletary. One of the hardest things, even for me, was when you do get a pro, right? Mm -hmm. And it requires you to leave your academy Mm -hmm. and leave the 20 or 30 kids behind. Yeah. And those kids are really the ones keeping the lights on. No kidding. Right? The the pro thing is kind of sexy. Yeah. But, you know, you got to fit them in, but you can't have the 12 or 13 year old who's sitting there and i think the pro thinks that oh that 12 or 13 year old is coming to you because of me because yeah. they see you with me and it's not that. The 12 or no. 13 year old and the parent writing that check is annoyed yes. that i'm with you. And annoyed exactly. that i'm cuz they can care less. They want their yeah. time. How, right. does, how have you been able to like balance that? Because to me that is a real Challenge for me, and also one of my biggest regrets. You know, when you travel 30 weeks, you've probably started a process with the kid and mm-hmm. had to leave. Mm-hmm. And you then realize that that kid didn't love tennis, they just liked tennis. Mm-hmm. But what they loved was their relationship with you, yeah, as a coach. And when yeah. you remove yourself to go do something else, that kid quits.
2: Yeah, great question. Here's the deal.
1: I I turned down,
2: I don't know how many players I could have worked with if I said yes and gone out on the tour. For number one reason for me was family. Wife, three children. I didn't feel comfortable being gone that much. Keep in mind, I I was a different era than you. I am older than you are. When I started, man, there was, there was no uh, cell phones. There was no Zoom sessions. You know, you, when you were away, you were really away. <laughs> and so, so the point is I just didn't feel that I wanted to take that chance with my family. So I flat out turned everybody down. And, um, and I also, and it wasn't easy because I was turning down very short, you know, getting very well known very quickly, and that's not an easy thing from ego standpoint or whatever. And I chose for a multitude of reasons to stay home. And even when I worked with Jeannie and you know, when I worked with Sloan, um, it, I would never commit. To a lot of weeks. And so I made tried to make my skill in coaching good enough where people would feel they could come down and I could help and contribute. So over the years, I've had many great players come in town where I could spend some time, men play male players. And sometimes I never even put it on any kind of social media because. People prefer to be more confidential, um, and or they're sponsored by another group. And so I I have the opportunity to work with people, and I keep my relationships, and I cherish them. And you know, some of the people they get back to me, and and Kamal, they're 50 years old, and they're saying. That they're, I've had people. They're they're now sending me their kids, and and for me, and and you understand this truly, is that for me it is a sacred trust when I work with a young person. I will I will die believing that, not only to the per to that child but to the parent, because we're both parents. We know how precious our children are we get it. I've got grandchildren. I get six grandchildren. And so I know when somebody says, here is my precious little one, it's more than just tennis. And so that's what motivates me daily. That's why I'm fired up so that if I can possibly affect change in a a child in a positive way that I know in my heart 30 years from now, they may... Thank you. you know, that Saviano guy didn't, you know, didn't screw me up or didn't steer me wrong. It gives, it gives depth. Do you understand this for what the great work you do. It gives your work depth beyond anything. And that's why last night I, it was hot here and I was on the court, no lie, 10 hours. Now, Sumo's clinic, and whatever. I'm not a young kid. And I have a lesson there at 630 in the evening. And I started at seven. And I'm tired. But you know what, that child, that was their special time. And you know it, and I know it. And that child deserves the best I got to get. And that is the way you keep it going, is when you know, and you believe that it's special to have young people looking into your eyes and parents trusting you.
1: Yeah. That's my answer. And, and I would say one of the things that, that and you know, because I've met a lot of you know coaches that have worked for you, one of my biggest challenges when you bring coaches up under you, it's just that, right? Yeah. Don't worry about the hour. You're gonna yeah. get paid for the hour. Yeah. Try to create a good experience for that kid because you don't want that kid. I just had a girl, Michelle DeMayo. So she just graduated from med school. And I used to pick this kid up yeah. from high school. This one I was working a full-time job. Yeah, I would get off my pharmaceutical job. She lived way far away in the suburbs. This is one of the first white girls I ever taught, yeah, right? really. The far in the suburbs. I picked her up from the St. Ignatius Catholic school, would drive her to tennis. I would change out of my suit into my tennis clothes,
2: Amazing.
1: give her a lesson. Then her mother, who was a nurse, would come pick her up later.
2: How she was graduated
1: from med school. And wow. called me and said, you don't want to be, you, when they get 30, you don't want to be the guy. They look back and says, yeah, I spent a lot of money on him and he never cared. He yeah. sat on his phone the whole hour. You exactly. want to say, man, whether I did what he said or not, he always tried to force me to do the right thing. That's right. And, and a lot you. of young coaches is like, bro, I'm going to pay you. Right. Mm-hmm. Whether you give a good lesson, or a bad lesson. Yeah. But yeah. you don't want that kid resenting you later on when they're old enough to understand what was done to them wasn't right or wasn't in bed. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, and even more than that, and you're, I, I, I'm
2: with you hundred percent, but we have an obligation and you know, this to educate in some way, that young coach, this is how you build a su- successful career. You know, it's not about when somebody's watching, it's when they're not there. You know, what are you doing? You know, where's the real integrity? And and so if we can affect change with young coaches as well as players, then we're doing something meaningful. And you know what? It's worked out well. And, uh, you know, I, I can honestly say I'm more motivated now. This is not an exaggeration on what I'm doing than I was when I started by far. I love it. I love it. I hope I can continue. And I really feel blessed.
1: And I think one of the things that you talked about being on the court, 10 hours, one of one of the challenges I see in our game with a young coach is, first of all, they're young coaches. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and you need the hours to get the experience. Absolutely. First of all, when I look back at my 25 year old self coaching, I sucked. Like I can yeah. now look back and say, damn, I didn't know anything. Right. Yeah. But I look at them and, I, and they're trying to figure out a way to make money coaching without actually being on the court. Yeah. And I always say, the plumber only gets paid when he's running pipe. Yeah. The electrician only gets paid when he's pulling wire. Yeah. It's really hard in this sport. If, you, if you're not a former pro, like Jim will make money forever at Tennis Channel. Lindsay yeah. will make money forever, right?
2: Yeah.
1: If you're not a former pro and you want to be in tennis, it is. I don't care what kind of app you create, it's all temporary. It's yeah. really hard to make money without putting the time in on the court. Do you find that the young, the young person in tennis now is trying to, how do I make money in tennis without being on the court? There's no substitute for that. You're, you're
2: correct. And, and it's reflective of our society a little bit is where things happen very quickly. They're used to getting answers quickly. You don't know something. You look at your phone and people are in a hurry. They see people working and they're young and all of a sudden they're on some um, tech company and they make millions of dollars. Well, that's very few and far between. And it's a matter of trying to educate them on where they're going to be successful and where they're going to be happy. And the happiness, it sounds trite and cliches, but the happiness is gonna come one day at a time with growth, real growth as a person, as at real growth in your skill set. And the more you grow, the more you commit it to it, the more you put into it over a period of time, the more you get out. And you know what? When you look at relationships, it's true. When you look at jobs, it's true. And when you look at people throughout their entire lives, one day at a time, make that, as John Wooden used to say, make that your masterpiece, one day at a time. And if we can guide them a little bit in that way, then we're doing a good thing.
1: So you talk about one day at a time, and you, I consider you one of, you know, I mean, look, American tennis, we've got a lot of work to do, right? Yeah. Um, but in terms of building a player you are probably one of the guys that I would say can do it from start to finish right from thank you five years old all the way to tour so what would you say now because what I see is in juniors a lot of hopping around a lot of following the good kids strokes look like a hodgepodge of five different coaches and five different ideas what is sort of your philosophy on dream development is it the six hours a day is it three good hours is it you know lessons in the morning match play in the afternoon what would you say your recipe we just held the boys 14s national level two mm-hmm. right and i was actually tournament director and i sat and watched every match
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i got texts from parents oh i didn't put it together who you were can you give my kid a lesson tomorrow this is like you know i was like Well, no, I won't do that because I'm not their coach. Yeah. But but I will tell you some things that I think your kid does well and maybe some opportunities. Mm. But you can keep your money. Mm. I'm running a tournament and I'm not their coach. Right. Um, What is what is your sort of recipe right now? If you were to build a junior, you know, Kamal, um, I'm
2: I have I've been working for years and you know, I'm coming out with, um, you know, I have my own methodology and the, the methodology starts with fundamental principles of life success. And so when you're teaching at a high level, you've got to be incorporating them in and you've spoken about it already. You know, things like perseverance, things like even in terms of technique wise, when you want someone to really watch the ball closely and the head still on the hit, you have to let go of the outcome. You got to be absorbed in that shot. And so right there is a fundamental principle of life success, staying in the moment, let go of the outcome. So I'm very big on fundamental principles of life success, fundamental principles of coaching that apply in all sports, then Fundamental principles of coaching tennis. Most people don't zero in on, not styles, fundamentals. If we take whether it be uh, Sloan, your student, uh, Jim Courier uh, from a different generation, the, the latest player, Serena, you have Swatik, and then you have Djokovic. Nadal, Federer, and we go look at their forehand, we could go over five, six key fundamentals. They all do the same. And you know what, that when you focus on that, you allow for the creative genius to come out in each individual player. But when you start focusing on style, now you're a lot of times you're limiting and they're not creating the foundation that is going to hold them in good stead. Now, so I focus on that. Then I go with high performance principles, like for example, you know, creating a massive rotational force or something like that. Well, that's not necessarily something you're going to do with a nine-year-old, but you are going to talk about great spacing and positioning, great footwork, great preparation, which are the fundamental principles. So also one last thing is, in the early stages of development, you must be cultivating a joy and passion and love for the game and a love for competing and so on. These are all part of the fundamental foundation that needs to be laid. You have stage one, where, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Then the next phase is more like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Then you go into a world class phase later on. Right now, the battle has been lost most of the time in the first phase and in the early part of the second phase because people don't master fundamentals.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: So we talk about strokes and fundamentals. If you had to put together your perfect player, male or female, and you had to pick somebody's forehand, backhand, serve, volley, chip, feet, mental, effort put that player together forehand well the the
2: greatest forehand i think i've ever seen would have to be in um, in his prime would be federer and uh, that's because he could do anything with it he could take it early he could transition he can put a lot of spin he can put very little spin in his prime he could take it early he could disguise he can drop shot with it He can slice, he can rip a return. I would say Federer on the forehand, on the backhand, probably Djokovic because of his ability athletically to hit in dynamically uh, stretched out uh, positions. Uh, Psychologically, either either Serena um, in her prime, I thought was an amazing competitor, or Monica Sellis. I thought was truly great. Nadal is right up there Um, with the volleys. Stefan Edberg is the best volleyer I've ever seen. Hands down. If you go look at his serve 95 miles an hour, but uh, one of the quickest guys to get in great, great hands. Return of serve the best ball striker off the return of serve I've ever seen would have been, Agassi, the best returner I've ever seen is Djokovic, Agassi wasn't as good an athlete, Djokovic, better athlete, can get in a stretched out position, but all around, um, the greatest player I've ever seen, male or female, um, it would be almost a tie between Serena and Djokovic. I mean, Serena Serena at her best, forget about records. Serena was the most dominant player I've ever seen on a tennis court in the female game. No disrespect to anybody else. Serena at her best, all things equal, beats everybody else. At her best, she's the best ever. To me, at his best, Djokovic, his record, even though Nadal has went ahead, it's unfortunate Djokovic didn't get a chance. The other, he also was injured, was been out. Um, And one, one Wimbledon couldn't be, couldn't play because of, uh, but Djokovic, my hat's off to him because he was not a great server when he came up. He was not a great volleyer when he came up. Mm -hmm. He did not have the best mindset when he came up. And man, He's one of the great servers right now. You know, he's one of the tremendous volleyers. He has morphed his game to, and look at, he's won on every surface. Um, And he has winning records against almost everybody. So I put him to me at those two at the two of the best of all time. At this point, somebody comes along, this young kid, Alcaraz is phenomenal. And now we got Sawatek, who's also phenomenal, beautiful mover.
1: Hey, that's what makes the game exciting. So let me ask you this. Last question. I know you probably got a role. So my kid is a senior now, right? Yeah. And mediocre tennis player. Yeah. And I see that with a lot of coaches. Yeah. Right? And I, I think about a guy like you, a guy like Macy, a guy like myself, who are on the court. Right. And we talk about to make money in the sport and to make a living, yeah. you got to be there,
2: yeah. which
1: means you're not at home. Mm. And I look at my daughter in particular, and I say to myself, You have slept in the bed with Sloan Stevens, Taylor Townsend, stayed in the same house with Monica Pui. How are you not good at tennis? Right. How are you not like playing at UCLA, playing at Stanford? And you know, you look at like yourself, how have you dealt with perhaps your kids not really falling in love with the game like, like some of all of your students have? You know what I mean? It's hard for a father to be like, oh, come out as your dad, you must be great. And she's like, yeah, I'm okay. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah,
2: yeah
1: I, How have you dealt with that? And how do you feel? I mean, I feel a certain type of way. Like, why, like, what did I do to not make you fall in love with the game?
2: You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I I was, when I, when they were younger, um, when they were younger, they were um, I was working with the USTA. So I was, I didn't have my own program. And, and so I wasn't on the court with them at all. And I actually had to travel, you know, 15, 16 weeks a year, not too much, but enough. And so, they didn't really get the opportunity. They were in this program and that program, and they didn't really show a propensity. It wasn't easy because, you know, when I was director of coaching for the United States for men's tennis, and then I was director of coaching education. And and so for them, they would get recognized when they'd be out there. And it wasn't, my eldest daughter was not really uh, a great athlete, very good academically. And she enjoyed the game. They all played somewhat. My youngest daughter played in college, but I have no regrets about that. You know, I, I I've devoted my life to my family and to my my career as well, but I, I didn't, I, I always felt that my decisions in tennis were dictated by my commitments to my family. And therefore my daughters never had an absentee father. They never had somebody who wasn't involved. I was at all of their functions and activities um, every, you know, holiday and everything that goes with it. And they're, you know, I'm super close with them. And my wife, I've been married 39 years. Um, The three girls. They're 38, 35, 32. They all have children, six grandchildren. And like I said, I'm really blessed. I've worked at it very hard, but you know what? We're all super blessed when we have a healthy family. Mm-hmm. And so I have no regrets regarding that.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that because now in addition to the 17-year-old, I got a five-year-old boy and a seven-year-old boy. Who have, That's not, a, that, yeah. have not, yeah. They've not searched the that. racket in a month, right? And uh-huh. I'm like telling my wife, I'm like, look, we got T-ball three times a week. We got baseball three times a week. We got acting class. I'm like, they got to at least hit a tennis ball. At Absolutely. Some and, yeah. and you know, we're going back and forth about it about we have to make tennis a bigger priority than we do something else, or at least it has to have a place. Right. And it's like, I'm yes. I've been doing a lot of reflection on why is it that maybe my wife is going in a different direction than the tennis on purpose? You know what I mean? Maybe, you know, how do we have keys to a club with 27 courts and we can't find a day in the week to have them play. So I, I ask you that because <laughs> I'm personally. Okay.
2: Well, can I tell you a couple things? Wayne <laughs> Bryan, who uh, the Bryan brothers, the father was really, really, we had great conversations. I've been friendly with them and the Brian brothers since they were 10 and a half years old. And he was always, always told me about fun, motivation, and so on. Make sure they're going to fun events. Make sure they're going to team events. Get them excited about it. Make it so that they want to be there. Get them on the courts with some of the great players you might work with. Mm-hmm. Get them to a high school match and see the excitement. But if you get them fired up, they're going to be dragging you out to the tennis court. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that's what I would say. I mean, it's a great sport. It's a wonderful sport for a lifetime. Get them fired up about it. I'm going to hold you accountable now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to check with you next year. I want to see real progress. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I appreciate the time. Always great to talk to you. Always great to learn from you right oh, and I say that very humbly because not enough coaches are open to learning from other coaches yeah. so uh you know this has been a tennis.com podcast with the legendary Nick Saviano
2: thank you so much it's been my pleasure take care come on thank you
1: brother.